who's from the RMIT University. He's a B aficionado also, and is currently studying climate change and its effects on plant pollinator interactions. And uh, next to Adrian, we have Scarlett Howard, who's a zoologist specializing in the workings of the brains of bees. And next to Scarlett, we have Martin Friedel, who composed um, a Dance of the Bees, Dance of the Bee, which was the second part of tonight's um, presentation. And next to Martin, we have Michael Kieran Harvey, who needs little introduction, as we've been watching him now for two hours or so. And many people have, would have followed his career over a long time. So welcome, welcome panel. Oh. One of the things we've been doing here at Arts House at these discussions is breaking the ice in a very particular way. Sorry to the people over there who I've got my back to. I'll try and keep remembering that you're there and turn around. One of the things we do to break the ice is to figure out what the right question to ask is. And the way that we do that is by spending one minute speaking to someone near you to figure out what the right question to ask this amazing panel is tonight. So I'd like to do that now. The minute is a countdown in my brain. It's not an accurate minute. Maybe we'll go by the B clock. Okay, so one minute now. Please speak to someone about what you think the most important question to ask is. Thank you. And that's the end of the minute. So please hold those questions in mind. There'll be a chance to ask them in a moment. But seeing as we have some special guests here today, people who you didn't see perform, I've prepared some extra questions, which I don't normally do. But I think you'll like them. Um, Martin, my first question is for you. There's a lot written in the program about the politics of bees and um, their relationship to our lives and what's going to happen to them through climate change. But I wanted to ask you, as a beekeeper and someone who's had a long relationship with bees, and as an artist, what, what is your fascination with them and your love for them or your interest with them from a, on a human level? What drew you to be inspired by them so deeply? Well, <clears throat> I can use this. Can you hear me? It's, it's just for the um, okay. recording the conversation. Is this on? Okay. Um, well, my interest in bees started um, in Germany shortly after the Second World War in the middle of a Bavarian winter with my mother playing piano and me reading a very um, cheaply printed um, volume of Winnie the Pooh or looking at the pictures, and I remember being fascinated by um, Winnie the Pooh trying to get the bees down and uh, attaching himself to a balloon and floating up in the sky. Um, and so this little nagging thought, once it was in this combination of uh, music and bees, I suppose, has been there um, for longer than I can possibly remember, and I suppose it, uh, it sort of uh, it erupted in various points. One, when I was walking across the Royal Park and I saw a swarm of bees hanging on a bush and I went back home and got a cardboard box and shook them in and uh, took them home and then rushed into town to a shop that sold uh, hive equipment and made a box and put them in there, and that was basically my start to it. 
And since then, I've kept bees whenever I can, in the inner city and elsewhere. And um, now I've had a hive for the last few years outside the room where I work. And so on a warm summer's day, I can hear the bees when I'm not making any noise. And I've noticed that when they're happy and contented uh, flying around, it's a nice day, they're pretty well on middle C, which I call the middle C of contentment. And that's, I suppose, where it started um, in some way. Does that answer your question? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And Michael, this is a more... This is something I, um, maybe it's a bit more conceptual, but I was sat over there, so behind you, when you were playing, and I read in the program about um, the bee dances, so the bee dances that the bee does in order to lead uh, another bee to the honey. And I saw you moving all the pieces of paper around. And I also thought, this is, this is an artist, a musician, who's had a very long career working very closely with some of the greatest composers in Australia. And my analogy is, I'm getting there, you know, are these marks on the paper a bit like a dance that you are following back into certain moments again, into some kind of musical moment that was connected to the composer's original thought? Do you, do you see what I mean? Like yeah. a, a trail that's taking you back to particular places and when you're going to those places are you channeling your inner bee yes <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very interesting you say that because I think music uh, operates uh, for the musician as as a as a dance um, with your instrument um, you try to make uh, shapes and um, interpret it in a way that is um, is, is as much visual, really, as um, as sonic, mm. and when you do that, it's um, it's inevitable that you're going to move around a bit. I I think it's um, it's healthy to move around uh, quite a bit. Um, I use paper. Uh, I'm not terribly up with the um, uh, technology, although having used um, digital media to read from, I find that the paper is um, more of a sculpture, if you like, in front of you that you can negotiate as, a, as like a road map. You can see the whole thing um, emerging, if that's what you're doing. Um, and this mapping sort of thing, I guess, is another connection with the bee, because the bee uses uh, the dance to um, explain a map, I believe, of where, um, where the source of nectar um, and uh, pollen is. And so in that way, yeah, it is a connection with, mm. the, with the bee, if you like. Um, it's a mysterious thing, music, because the, if you like, the haptic element, mm. the, the physical element of it, um, becomes part of an interpretation, becomes part of those um, bits of code on, on, the, on the score. Um, and, um, you know, good composers like, like Martin understand this and allow the artist to have a sense of freedom with that code to make it physically possible. Mm. Thank you. Scarlett, <laughs> um, I read in um, your biography that you're studying bees and bees have 
only one million neurons or around one million neurons in the brain, which sounds fascinating. And I have lots of questions about how bees even have brains, how we can even call a million neurons a brain. But I, w I was struck when I was listening to tonight's performance that the bees have been the inspiration for m all of this music, all of the work tonight. But as a bee specialist, how do you know what the effect of music has back on the bees? And we've got these bees present here, you know. How were they feeling, <laughs> do you think, when they were hearing the music? Has there been any studies on um, the effect of music on bees? I'm not aware of any studies on the effect of music on bees. Um, Adrian, are you well, aware? I, I think I would have felt very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bees can have some perception of sound, but very different organ. Like, they don't have an ear like us. Mm. So they sense vibration. And you can see when they're dancing, like we saw in the excellent video, that um, they're sensing the vibration, but mm. they, they do it for a... Sorry, can you hear? Yeah. Um, they do it through a, a different mechanism to an ear. Mm. But I think that with the beautiful music, they would have felt very good. Mm. So they would be able to sense the maybe volume because of increased vibrations. The vibration. Yeah, but we can sense the vibration. Look, we know from um, humans who might have a hearing loss, they can mm. still feel music very, very well just from the vibration and get mm. a very good sense of it. That's probably an analogy to how the bees might be sensing it. So they don't have the sophistication of our brain and, and hearing sense mm. to hear the subtleties of the music. But they certainly have some capacity. Mm. Thank you. And one more question for you, Adrian. I also read that um, these, these, these bees have been around maybe for 65 million years, which is a lot longer than human beings. Um, but they are threatened now. So. What do you think their chances of surviving the Anthropocene are? And are we facing the end of bees like we might be facing the end of humans? Um, that, that really is the uh, 154 billion euro a year question. Um, and that, that's actually a number which comes from the United Nations of the effect of, of bees on uh, contribution to the economy through pollination of plants and food we eat. We don't know. There's a lot of people working on this and trying to solve a problem and manage it. And like a lot of things in human endeavour, there's no prophecy of what's the right answer or wrong answer. There's a lot of people working hard to try and solve these issues and hopefully we will solve them. Thank you. And Robert, a question for you. Bees and beekeeping and the plight of bees has become much more forward in people's consciousness recently. Yes. And as someone who works in the bee industry, as it were, have you noticed a change in people's interest in bees over the last few years? Yes, definitely. I look after hobbyists mostly, and there's much heightened interest in beekeeping. Mm. And uh, it comes from all age groups, really. It's uh, re people retiring with a block of land in the country or young families where they want their children to understand where food comes from. Mm. And, uh, yeah, younger people again. And with the... Um, I also read that there's quite a lot of blights and different things affecting bees at the moment because of the almost monoculture surrounding particular kinds of bees. Mm. Are people 
are you able to get different kinds of bees to help? What's a sustainable and responsible way of keeping bees, I wonder? You know. Well, I, I guess there's a whole lot of issues behind what you say. Mm. Um, I see globalisation as creating uh, some negatives that takes pests all around the world. So before bees have a chance to evolve to deal with some threat, they're confronted with, uh, say, varroa mite or small hive beetle came to Australia 2002. So there's these new pests that uh, make it hard for colonies to maintain health. And um, I guess you just need a pretty broad genetic base and the queen breeders now concentrate very much on hygiene. Bees that are obsessed with hygiene makes for healthier hives. That's mm -hmm. one aspect. Thank you. Now, I've asked enough questions now. I've been hogging the microphone. So if you I can remember your question from before, if you'd raise your hand, I could, um, we can take your question. What, as we are recording tonight's conversation, I, I will repeat your question, just for the purposes of the microphone. Oh, we actually have a roving mic, so we don't need to do that, great. Now, does anyone have a question? Oh, yep, two over there, one over there. Um, I was just wondering, do bee colonies ever have um, parasitic members? Members that just eat the food of the colony but don't do any work? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, not, not usually. Um, they're pretty much controlled by the pheromones that the queen releases and she's pretty good at keeping everyone in order. Um, but as, as Martin just said, there are drone bees who don't really have much of a function other than to breed with the queen, and they don't really help with anything else. They just have, they just get fed and they eat, and that's sort of their life. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, for the most part, um, all the bees pitch in. I think if they weren't pitching in, they'd probably not be allowed back in the hive. But yeah. Hmm. Okay. So are there are there defences that stop bees from being able to come back in the hive if they, you're not allowed? They, they do have guard bees at the front of the hive um, that you know stop predators or alert the other bees to predators trying to come into the hive and they're there to guard it. So I would assume that they'd be able to stop really lazy bees from coming back in, but I don't, I don't think they'd be outside anyway doing any of the work. <laughs> exactly. Does that answer your question? Um, yes, thank you. And did you have a question next door? Or oh, there's one over there right at the very end. And then we'll come back over. You can tell me what are the bees on the screen doing? What, what are they? Well, that's a good question. Who'd like to answer that? What are the yeah, bees on the screen doing? There's many tasks they've got to do. They're building comb. They're perhaps feeding larva. They're looking for rubbish or waste to take out of the hive. And you've got to watch for quite a while to work out who's doing what. And the mystery to me is how they do the division of labour. How are they deciding who does what? But somehow, some group intelligence, and there's people better here qualified than me to answer that question. Like Adrian. <laughs> there, there appears to be, um, well, no, there definitely is an age division. So bees, as they go through different phases of their life, will be first like a nursemaid bee, um, then they'll graduate to doing different tasks in the hive. Then, as Scarlett mentioned, I'll be a, a guard bee for a while. Then I'll be a forager bee. 
And it's very interesting, during this whole phase, their brain's developing, but it's, it's a lot of interest in this from human cognition because as you get a bee which ages to be an experienced forager, people have then taken ex an experimental paradigm, some nursemaid bees out of a hive, then some of the experienced foragers will go back and do that job because the hive needs it. And so there seems to be a lot of reverse plasticity that they can do in a variety of different jobs. Their brain develops of experience, but they've got the flexibility to slot back into different roles. And do they do all those jobs within a 21-day life cycle, or is that a myth, the 21-day life? Sorry. I mean, from what I understand, that in summer when they're busy, um, bees basically, as far as I have read, um, don't, once they're mature, don't get any protein. So there's no protein which is necessary for repair of wear and tear and so on. So they get uh, rocket fuel, which is the honey, so they can fly, and they fly huge distances. But basically they wear out. So the more they fly at the height of summer, um, the more they wear out, and when they wear out, they die. Uh, the ones that last over winter then have a longer life. They stay with um, the, the hive and look after it until the next lot of bees come along. Is that correct? Yeah. Great, thank you. And yes, over here, please. The question is about how, does, how do the bees know how to put an individual piece of beeswax into a particular slot? Well, they've observed that bees produce wax from about day 10 to about day 14 of their life uh, very readily. And so that comes out of underneath their abdomen. They grab that with their legs and somehow instinctually they know that they've got to form circles with it. And then they apply a bit of heat and the internal tensions in the wax pull it into these perfect hexagons. And so that, that just sort of happens. And if they should need, uh, if they're short of honeycomb later in their life, as we've already heard, they've got the flexibility to then get their wax-producing organs back into action again. But if everything goes according to plan, it's just for that short time that they produce wax. So I guess they respond to that. I've also read some research that uh, indicates that they can control the percentage of bees that do particular tasks by the temperature that the bees are raised at. So some of the bees are raised at a temperature of about 35 degrees C, and some are raised at a temperature of about 35 and a half degrees C. And they're more likely to be forager bees if they're raised at the higher temperature. So I guess the original thinking was that there was this uh, idea that they start off being nurse bees and then they get promoted to be a guard bee and then later in their life they're a forager bee. But it's a bit more complex than that. And uh, but the plasticity that's been mentioned allows them to adjust the percentages doing chores depending upon the need. And um, that's... Well, do they make an individual decision? It's like a group intelligence. Uh, they must be considered a super organism. It's a single organism and they're part of a, a larger organism. Maybe we could just do a follow-on question from that about the relationship between the individuals and the bigger organisation in relation to the composition tonight as well in the second in your, in your piece, Martin, because they, um, there's improvisation happening on stage. There is a conductor, and but there is a system at play. And I saw cue, different people giving different cues at different times. How 
Is, is that um, a reflection on the bees it, working into the composition? Um, well, <clears throat> the composition is that there are four pieces and each one is based on some fundamental musical, uh, I suppose, discovery. The first one is what's called the harmonic series and the harmonic series is created by having a vibrating string and dividing into parts and you get basically get, if you divide it for long enough, you get the entire chromatic scale. Um, and so that's a play on that. Um, the next thing is the white notes, the 15 white notes. I understand that when bees are about to um, swarm or when they look for swarming, they basically take a vote. When a quorum of bees is reached telling them to go to a particular place as a swarm, they'll go. And so there's these 15 short sentences. Um, and then there's the other one, is imitation and elaboration. And in a lot of um, biological music making from birdsong, there is a process of imitating and elaborating, so taking something and adding a bit more so that you get individualisation. And over that, in the case of the bees, you've got 15, 20, 50,000 things following what might be quite simple rules, because simple rules can give rise in mass to very complex behaviour. And so the music is based on my, what you might call simple rules which are carried right through and so the pieces, even though they've got um, a free element in them for the interpreters to do, it still will sound, every time it's played, much the same in some ways. It'll be recognisable as that piece. And so that is a sort of a mimicry or a metaphor for perhaps what happens with the bees. That's how I interpreted it. Now, are there any more questions? Maybe we've got time for two more. Oh yes, at the front. Let's just wait for the microphone to come. How do you get bee wax out of a hive? Who would like to answer that? The question is, how do you get bee wax out of a hive? There's a few ways. When you get the honey out, you've got to cut the cappings off. So every little cell gets covered with a cap of wax. And to get the honey out, the beekeeper will cut the cap off with a hot knife. Or maybe they'll just scratch it open with a fork. And then you collect all that when you cut it off. You collect it all and you put it in a saucepan and warm it and it melts into a block. That's a simple version. And then sometimes you clean out an old comb because it's got too old and dirty. So you just take it out, shake the bees off, cut the comb out and melt it down in a saucepan. There you go. You can go home and try that now. Um, yes, you please. And maybe we'll take one more, seeing as that one was quite quick. Um, this is oh, so, sorry. It was the, the, I think it was the, the, the woman behind, please. Sorry. <laughs> you don't have to ask a question. <laughs> um, I hear in, uh, the Australian bees seem to have um, escaped some of the other diseases and parasites that are happening around the world. Um, is there anything in that we can do as citizens to help lobby government or different organisations here to help keep it that way and keep the diseases at bay? Maybe, Adrian, could you answer that one? Um, I, I think, well, I'll give an initial answer, and it, it's getting a little away from my expertise, but conferences I've been to, and certainly when I come back into the country and if I'm ever bringing any bee equipment back in, I think we have to be very grateful for our very very strong and very good quarantine service 
which does a very good job to keep um, foreign bees from coming in. And I know there's a lot of very good government programs to support that. Um, do you have anything to add? The commercial bee organisations lobby government a lot to spend money on keeping out particular pests. And there's uh, Asian bees have come to North Queensland and that's uh, Apis serena and the bees we have here tonight are Apis mellifera, which is Western honeybee or European honeybee, but the Apis serena is Asian honeybee and it's the natural uh, carrier of the Varroa mite. So they're concerned that if that bee shows up, then the mite will follow. So I guess the government was spending money to get rid of Apis serena and then decided it was a lost cause and stopped spending money. So I think it is important for government to know that people care that they spend money to prevent the various problems. And you've got to kind of follow the bee press to know what the latest problem is that they're ignoring, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> so there's a, one more question, maybe just here. Thank you. Just this lady, no, just there. Thank you, Anita. Uh, this question is for Scarlett. Can you tell us a bit about your research and any interesting things that you've found? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so at the moment I'm doing my masters in um, zoology and the first experiment I conducted was to actually building on something Adrian did. And the short story of that is um, we were presenting bees with different sized stimuli, so they were just square and diamond shapes. Um, we taught them to associate either a larger or a smaller size with a reward like sucrose, and the other one with something that was a bit bitter, a bitter tasting um, liquid. So they didn't know which one was which till they tasted it either. And over the course of 80 choices, we were able to teach them to learn when they're presented with two different size stimuli, either go to this one, because this is what I've been trained to, the smaller one, or the larger one, depending on the bee. Um, so that took about between five to eight hours, <laughs> um, just working with one single bee. And um, we, were, yeah, we were able to show that, and that's what's previously been shown by Adrian and his collaborators. Um, but building on that, we were also able to show that they could then apply this to sizes that they'd never seen before, never been exposed to. And we're hoping that this can sort of tell us a bit about how they choose how to pollinate some flowers. Um, there's suggestions in a few studies that um, bees in particular and honeybees have a preference for larger sized flowers. And sometimes they're more rewarding than smaller flowers, sometimes they're not. Um, and so we think that there's an application there to learn more about their pollination. So that's one thing we did. Thank you. Um, so I think that's about all we've got time for tonight. Do check out the rest of Arts House's programme. It, we're halfway through this season. It's a really excellent season. There's information outside. There's also, oh no, it's just finished. I was going to say there's another performance happening at Meat Market, which is about drones, when we could have talked for a long time about the connections between these two shows and their, the programming choice of putting them next to each other, but we don't have time for that. So I'd really like to thank the panel uh, tonight. And thank you for taking the time to ask us questions.